So in August, I got to um, go back to England. And one of the things I love about England is just the architecture and just walking into cities and seeing that. And one of our, we actually had a couple of days in Cambridge, which um, is just a series of small colleges <laughs> spread around the city centre and uh, one of the oldest colleges in the country. <clears throat> we also went to York, and York's my favourite city in England. And has anyone been to York? Seen York Minster? Yeah, it dates back to the 7th century. It's been worshipping taking place, and, and it's just this extraordinary building, this, this wondrous edifice and uh, quite remarkable uh, to see and to consider how people built things like that back in the day. And you just see some of the genius of people. And in a way, in our story, remember we're on this journey to Jerusalem, we're in Jerusalem. The time is drawing near. And as, um, <clears throat> as Jesus' disciples are walking out of this temple, they're a little in awe of that building. Now the temple, remember, is a most significant place. Frank and Audrey were talking about that last week. They got to see some of what remains of what's known as the second temple. Well, the temple dates back to, well, it was David's desire, but the Lord said, no, your son, and eventually Solomon, had the temple built. And it was a place where the, the glory of God came down. It was known as the meeting place with God. It is what defined Israel as a nation, a place where they sacrificed to deal with their sin because they sought to meet with a holy God. And it had a somewhat glorious and inglorious history because the people didn't take seriously the nature of the God they sought to worship. And so in the um, 6th century before Christ, uh, Jerusalem was overrun and the temple largely destroyed by the Babylonians. And many in Israel, not all, but many were taken into exile. And that's where we have some of the psalms. You know, how can you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And yet, part of the Lord's word to the exile, people in exile was, build your lives there. I have a plan and purpose for you. So always, whatever the situation, God has a plan and a purpose for us. Well, eventually, some came back. We read about Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding. Um, <clears throat> And eventually, it was Herod the Great, actually, who was renowned for his building as he ruled that area. He was renowned for a number of things. He's the guy who, uh, in Matthew, talks about the slaying of the innocents, the children under two. But he built a lot. And he actually wanted a, wanted a significant temple in Jerusalem, his capital. Really, because he wanted somewhere that looked dignified and grand. He wanted to be kind of in favour with the Jews as well because he was a man who struggled with tremendous paranoia and depression. In fact, it's reported that he, uh, he commanded his family that on his death they were to gather a, a number of significant people and kill them so that there would be sufficient mourning at his death. That's how twisted he was. They didn't carry out the command Thank goodness, because that probably wouldn't have done them a lot of favours. So we've got this wondrous building, and yet Jesus gives a warning, and he speaks a prophetic word. <clears throat> and he speaks into, I think, although something that gets fulfilled fairly quickly, and we'll look at that, but he speaks into the danger of focusing upon the externals. Focusing just upon buildings and structures, upon ceremony and form, 
without content, the temple would be destroyed as Jesus predicted. In fact, in AD 70, after about four years, the the Romans eventually overran the Jews. Millions were massacred and the temple was razed to the ground and much, all of what is left largely is a part of this western wall, the Wailing Wall as it is known. When the temple was destroyed, biblical Judaism died with it. Actually, quite literally, there are 613 commandments in the Jewish faith. 202 of them require a physical temple. But of course, they didn't just lose the temple, they lost the land. And God did it. Many Jews today are waiting for the rebuilding of the physical temple, the third temple as it's called. called. They've got everything ready for it, apart from possession of the land, the temple mound. It's controlled by the Muslims. And there's great tension in the midst of that. I want to read uh, some verses from the prophet Ezekiel who prophesies into this this rebuilding. I've I've kind of called this a temple destroyed and rebuilt. Let's put those words up, Gene. My servant David, so this is Ezekiel speaking way after David. But my servant David will be king over them. He's speaking about the future Messiah, the king that God would send in the like of David. And they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws, be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. So there's some of this promise that's believed that forever. They're in exile when he's speaking this. There's the promise of restoration. Where was I? My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Sorry, I will make a covenant of peace with them. So this is still part of the Jewish expectation because God's promise is to be among us, to have a sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? That that goes back really to the the tabernacle, the, the place of meeting where we encounter and meet and know the Lord. Much of the prophecy of these words that were spoken were fulfilled within that generation, as Jesus said, with the destruction of the temple. In fact, Jesus said in John's Gospel, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. He spoke, of course, about his body, which John goes on in the Gospel to interpret and understand. He prophesied about his own resurrection More importantly, he spoke about the new place of meeting, the new temple, the new sanctuary where God dwelt because it would no longer be in a building made of stone. But there was to be a new place of encounter, a new place of glory, a new place of sacrifice. And I think this passage, though fulfilled almost 2,000 years ago, has something to say to us here at Jericho Road in the rebuilding that God is doing today. Because God, as the prophecy of Isaiah also speaks into, still longs for a place of meeting, still is recreating his people and his temple. And I think with these warnings about the focus on the externals and on the physical, as great as they are, we have this contrast between the outer and the inner. So much we are concerned with what is projected outwardly, what people see of us, whether it's us personally, our family, our church, our community, whatever. And yet again and again and again the scriptures say, 
But the Lord looks to the heart. For it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the heart that makes us unclean. You see, God is interested in the inner life. That's why that scripture spoke to me so much of God wanting to strengthen us in our inner being. The inner man, as it's called in the New King James. But it's talking about the inner identity of who we are. So what can we learn? Firstly, beware of being easily deceived by people. He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. We are easily deceived. In fact, most of the Apostle John's letters, particularly his first letter, is writing against the community of faith who are being deceived. It's the early phases of what became known as Gnosticism, this, this sort of higher level, this spiritual faith. And if you've got this knowledge, that, then you are good. And it really doesn't matter how we behave in the flesh, how we behave in our natural lives, and particularly the measure of our love for one another. So drifting from the central message and the commandment of Jesus to love one another. So much so that John says, Say you love God, but you hate your brother. You're deceived. And the truth is not even in you. Beware that we are not deceived, thinking that we can be in right standing with God, enjoying spiritual vitality, and not be reconciled to one another. Otherwise, we are easily deceived. You see, we have an enemy who masquerades as light, an angel of light. But essentially, he is the deceiver. He is, again, as we read in John, the father of lies. There is an energy that's a reality that we do battle with, within and without, where he wants to destroy. He comes to steal, to kill and destroy our lives. And he does it subtly through deception. And left to ourselves, we are all susceptible to that. And very often it's the pain of our lives, as we've been exploring on Sunday evenings, that leads us into a place of deception. And we spiral downwards. And one of the, the hindrances to our loving one another I've talked about is this self-condemning voice. This voice that says to me, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm unworthy, I'm undeserving. I'm disqualified somehow. I'm incapable. You see, darkness is encroaching, Jesus tells us. And so we've got to pursue light. The tendency within us is to be sucked towards darkness, to doubt, to disbelieve, actually. To believe the lies. To feel condemned. And that's why we're told to pursue light, pursue truth, pursue the Lord, His people, and as we've been looking on Wednesday mornings, His Word, which is a lamp to our feet. Are you a person of the Word of God? Is the Word living to you? Are you excited to read the Word of God? Because in it is words of life and light that will protect you and keep you from feelings and thoughts and the deception of the evil one who will discount you. And you need light from outside. And His Word is part of His provision for us. It was true of Jesus. Think of Jesus in the wilderness. And what the, this, this same enemy who battles against us sought to do was to convince him that he was not the Son of God. You see, that's one of his strategies. Oh, call yourself a Christian. Call yourself holy. Look at yourself. He twists the truth. If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's not been eaten for 40 days. He probably fancied some bread right then. It is written. 
You see, where Jesus went to was the Scriptures. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God is literally food and drink to us. Is it to you? Just pause a minute. Do you have a scripture, favorite scripture that speaks to you about the nature of who you are? The truth that helps you in those moments where you're questioning, you're not sure, you're doubting the reality. Romans 8 is a great chapter. In Romans 8.15, Paul writes, But the Lord gave us the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. I love that verse. It's, it's the concept I often camp out in. To know that, that God has bestowed on me the gift of being a child of God. And living in a place of rest, living in a place of security, of well-being, of living in place in connection and relationship with a Father who loves me and provides everything I need for life. I lose sight of that at times. And I lose sight of my identity. And I've got to reorient myself back to truth. What's the truth that the Lord has reorient, used to reorient your life? Just take a moment. Think about that. <clears throat> if you have one, take a moment. Share that with somebody near you. Hallelujah. Amen. Believe in your heart and confess. Live it out. Don't just believe it. Walk it. Thank you for sharing that with all of us, Ray. It's a truth important for us to hold on to. How you're learning to use the truth. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's part of the armor. It's part of the way in which we do battle against the lies of the enemy and the lies within ourselves. Better move on. You're all sitting quietly, not talking. I would encourage you, before this, is at, this service is out, Ask the Lord to give you a word for somebody else. Because you can all prophesy in order to strengthen, build up, and comfort one another. The word of God is to be given to speak words that edify and strengthen the body. But only when the prophet speaks. Speak, Lord, through your people, to your people. Secondly, beware of becoming afraid of circumstance becoming afraid of circumstance. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. You will be hated, you will be put in prison, some of you will be killed. All of these things happened as Luke continues his writing through the Acts of the Apostles. We hear about the, this all playing out and yet Jesus says, don't be frightened. Came across a word this week. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing. It's a thought pattern. Anybody here tends to catastrophize? We make mountains out of molehills. The sky is falling in. We're all doomed. Sorry, that's an old dad's army one. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dish. I appreciate that. But our world is being shaken. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. Everything is being shaken. The foundations, because we've lost sight of them. And this is why, as we sang, we need a solid rock. We need something to stand upon. We need a foundation, an anchor in the storm. 
And we need to put our phones on vibrate or off before we get in here. Sorry, that's an invitation. I'm as bad as that as anyone. But fear is our great enemy, as well as lies and deception. <laughs> Tonight we're, we're, we're in fear. Kind of, you're excited to come along. And that means we've got to learn to trust. You see, this invitation to love God is to trust Him. To trust the Father in His provision. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness. But how much more His suffering in the garden before His crucifixion. You see, very often we resort back to our own selfish ways and we seek to control when we're afraid. We, we seek to manage our circumstances. We seek to take what we need rather than trust others, God included, but people as well. And faith in God, to trust in God, means to trust in His story, the true history, the story of what God is doing that is way above our own stories. Yet we've been invited to, to see our lives in that context. But when all we see is our own life and our own struggles and, and things going wrong, where do we turn? So what the Word also helps us is to reinforce this story of God's dealing and God's promises towards us. His kingdom, His reality, His eternal reality. All this will happen to you, yet not one hair of your head will be damaged. Stand firm. How do you do that? You don't do it alone. You don't do it out of the place of fear. But we need an experience of the comfort of the Lord in the place of our suffering and our pain. Absolutely. But as I shared last Sunday night, we need more than that. I speak of divine curiosity. As well as comfort, we need people to help us lift out of our world into the truth of God's bigger reality. To realize that the Spirit is at work even in my suffering as He was at work in the suffering of the Jews. To draw them back. And sometimes we just want the suffering to end. But sometimes God needs to show us things to lift us to a greater place of trust in Him. The words of Jesus, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's human. He doesn't want to suffer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, He knew He was part of a bigger story. He knew that God was at work in and amongst all of this seemingly evil. And rather than give in to fear, he entrusted himself to the Father and the goodness of God. Lastly, beware of relying upon self-defense against an adversary. But before all this, they will seize you, persecute you, hand you over to synagogues, put you in prison, brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. Everyone will hate you because of me. And sometimes we want to create our sense of security and hope for the future by girding ourselves up, planning everything in advance, knowing everything that's going to happen before I even get out of bed or before I enter into this workplace, this meeting, this whatever. And God wants to learn us to trust that we're not called to the self-reliant life. We're not called to our own ingenuity and in what I can figure out. Sometimes I, you know, earlier in my preaching, I kind of wanted everything. I wanted to know everything that was coming. And God humbled me that one day when 
I'm preaching early on and I miss a page. And I get about three lines down the sermon before I realized it was so embarrassing. Believe you me, if you'd been in that place, it would have been embarrassing. Because I had to stop and say, I'm sorry, I've got this totally messed up. I need to go back. <laughs> but you see, I was, I was so focused on myself rather than upon the Lord. And part of this is, do we trust the Spirit and His life in me? And His promise to bring revelation? And so when people like Mike say to you, ask the Lord for a word to give to somebody else, how many of you inside just freaked out at that moment? And said, not me. Because we think, well, I can't do that. But that's believing the lie. The Word says you can all prophesy. So what do we do? We stop living the self-reliant life. We believe that God is with us and in us. And He speaks and invites us to do the same. Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you realize I have power to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answers, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Again, he trusts the Father. He knows God is sovereign in all things. He knows that ultimately his future is secure in him. And therefore, he doesn't resort to the kind of games that we sometimes do when we're facing struggle and we're afraid and we're fighting for ourselves. I want to show it. Four quick things with you that um, I often share with couples. And, um, and they're really a manifestation of all the things that we're talking about as, as the kind of the things we resort to when we're deceived or when we're afraid or when we're looking within ourselves to, to find a way through. But it just doesn't apply to marriage. But a guy called John Gottman came up with them and he called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You all heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? I've mentioned some of these. But these are destructive patterns in our relationships. They're destructive patterns in the nature of our community if we're trying to build upon them. Because they're really coming from us, often in a self-protective way. And I think the Lord is inviting us to something that's more glorious of Him, that's more costly to us, that will bring greater glory to His name. Though. First one is, Criticism, the tendency to take whatever the problem is and put it in the person I'm upset with. You never do this. You're always doing that. That kind of language. And we make the person the object of our complaint. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And yet that's exactly where we put it. Unfortunately, what that triggers in the other person is just defensiveness. I'm going to fight back. Why should I let you attack me? And things go from bad to worse. And what is needed is greater vulnerability and gentleness. All of which are a fruit of the Spirit's life in us. Second one is defensiveness itself. So when we're under pressure and when we're hurting, we tend to defend ourselves by counter-complaint or whining. Don't you know how bad it is for me? Nobody ever does whatever for me. All those other people get to do that. I never get to do or see anything. Poor me. I'm the victim. But when people give us something that is honest and healthy feedbacks, truth in love, 
Our invitation, I think, is to think, what do I need to learn from this? Is there something in this that I'm missing? Because I have my blind spots and I'm easily deceived and I need truth to be spoken for to, in order to grow up. That's the context of speaking the truth in love, is that so we would grow up into him in our relationships together. Third one is contempt. This is where we go beyond the criticism and we basically just see the other person as not as good as us. We're above them. We're better than them. So we'll put them down. We'll take the higher ground. We'll mock them. We'll call them names. We'll roll our eyes like Fraser. We'll do all of these things because smugly we're somehow better. And rather than that, we need a culture of appreciation and approval of one another that sees the good. That's honest with the truth, but what we give is the affirmation. And yet I see and hear a lot of the other. Constantly. Not just in this community. In people's lives. And finally, this is, a, this is an area of male dominance and uh, where we're particularly skilled at this, stonewalling. Actually, it's said that uh, in the marriage relationships, more women tend to criticize. I'm quoting, by the way. But more men stonewall. We shut down. The gates go up. The eyes glaze over. We, we, we turn to the box and watch the game. But unfortunately, it comes across like we don't really care. The reality is very often is that we're just overwhelmed. We don't know how to care. We don't know how to respond. And it doesn't seem like you want to help me in that. You just want to keep putting me down. And so the vicious cycle continues. I put this quote on our service leaflet. It comes from uh, Larry Crabb. He says this, God will, well I put part of it, here's the full quote, God will one day wage war against every reason for tears and he will win. But for now he is fighting a different battle that as it is successfully fought leaves plenty of reason for tears. Until we go home, we can count on God to lead us into battle against soul disease. The inner person. This is where, like Israel, we are sick and need healing. We're broken. That's the war he is waging today. That's the war he wants us to fight along with him. And this, I believe, is the work of rebuilding that God's wanting to do. It's interesting when you, when you watch a high-rise building going up, how long it takes before they even get to ground level. How much of a foundation has to be established to take the stress of what is above ground? And you know, we, we are an expression of what is beneath ground in us. The way we live, the way we interact, the way we speak or don't speak, the expressions we show on our faces, this is an expression of the reality of what is on the inside. I'm not saying it always has to be sweetness and light. No, it doesn't. But it has to be real. It has to be vulnerable. It has to be honest. And our faith has to be something that impacts and heals and transforms us in the inner place. In the inner man, as Paul says. Because if, if I believe it's true what God wants to do in Jericho Road and in this valley, it's going to take incredible inner strength to bear that kind of glory and that kind of suffering. It's no less than what Jesus expressed. But what is given to us is no less than what was given to him. 
And the deeper we go inwards, the farther and the greater we will go outwardly. But let's not try to go outwardly without this foundation. It's a house of cards. And it comes down very quickly. So when you think about it, what pattern do you recognize in yourself? Which might be a dominant behavior? What might, be the Lord, what might the Lord want to be saying to you to invite you to grow in a contrary Holy Spirit way of relating and responding? Whether that's to your spouse, to your children, to your friends within this community, wherever it may be, the boss at work, who knows? Because we are who we are. And we'll express who we are all the time. And who knows, maybe somebody today will give you a word that will speak right into this. God can do that kind of thing. And He wants to do that to encourage you. He wants to do that to demonstrate that He's for you, not against you. He sees it. He understands. He still died for you. But He's committed to Christ being formed in you. And this is the work we're engaged in. By the grace of God. And the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here before you as your children as we acknowledge. But we come out of brokenness. We come out of lostness. We come out of more disconnect than connection. But yet you are doing a new thing, Lord. You are building your church. You are rebuilding your temple. And you're doing it through living stones joined together. You're doing it through people and lives interconnected, interdependent, teaching us how to love one another, teaching us how to grow into greater freedom than we've lived to date in order that you can build something glorious and majestic upon our lives together. So we say, come Holy Spirit. We risk saying yes to you, Lord. Because as we sang at the beginning, we give all to you including our brokenness. And we say, yes, Lord, have your way among us. Have your way, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Meet me in my place of fear. Meet me in my place where I struggle to see you and only see my own world. Meet me in my self-defensiveness at times and self-reliance. And lead me down this, this pathway, this, this way of Christ, this way of life, this way of blessing, the highway of holiness. For your glory we pray. Amen. Let's stand.